Welcome to The Dr. Medic, everyone, where I will do my best to bridge the gap between research and practice and the world of helicopter EMS and all of paramedicine. Catch the full effect of these podcasts with all the visuals over on YouTube, but for now, let's get started. The date is August 2009, and a flight crew on a helicopter is flying a patient from a very small rural town to a very big metropolitan city in a Midwest state. The patient is somewhat young and appears healthy, but is possibly having some cardiac issues. The crew proceeds to give a medication, and just moments later, the patient goes into cardiac arrest. What happened? Was she dying of a heart attack, or did the paramedic make a fatal mistake? Coming up on this episode of The Doctor Medic. This story is going to kick off a small series I'm going to do on EMS patient care investigations. Just like I have done with some helicopter investigations, I'm going to be looking at 911 calls or transfers or helicopter medical trauma calls where something went wrong clinically and there was something worthy of investigating. Just like with the helicopters, the purpose is to learn about how other mistakes were made, discuss why they were made, all in the hopes that we can learn from those previous mistakes instead of making the same mistake again and hopefully preventing the loss of life. Before we get started, I want to be clear about this story. This is a real patient story and privacy is of the utmost importance. So all the names and the locations have been changed to protect the privacy of all of those involved. But in aviation, nuclear engineering, and even things like offshore oil drilling, the sharing of information is extremely important. For instance, if a Southwest Airlines mechanic makes a mistake that almost causes an airliner to crash and kill 187 people, Southwest Airlines has a system in place, officially called a Safety Management System, or SMS, that is set up to allow for all mechanics that work at Southwest Airlines, and sometimes even all mechanics in the world that might work on that particular aircraft, to share the information that led to that mistake so that another mechanic doesn't repeat that mistake and cause an airliner to crash on the other side of the country, killing everybody on board. In healthcare, though, this is rarely the case due to privacy laws and liability concerns. But fortunately, here at the Doctor Medic, we don't have to worry about either because, like I said, all identifiable parts of this story have been changed to protect everyone's privacy. This story begins in a very small and very rural town, such as in rural Nebraska or Kansas. There is a patient who is in the emergency department of this very small hospital. She is 45 years old and has a pretty decent medical history, really only suffering from hypertension. She came into the ED complaining of chest pain, and an immediate EKG was taken. Her EKG does not show any imminent signs of an acute myocardial infarction, or AMI, otherwise known as a heart attack. Her cardiac enzymes, especially troponin, are slightly elevated, which could be a sign of an AMI, but does not actually confirm it. Really, the only true way to confirm an AMI is via an arteriogram, which requires a cardiac cath lab and subsequent cardiac cath lab folks, such as cardiologists and specialized nurses and techs and stuff like that. 
but none of that existed at this hospital, and none of which are usually available in small rural towns such as this, but are usually readily available in every metropolitan area of the United States. So what do small emergency departments in rural America do when they have these kinds of patients? They could call an ambulance and drive them to a hospital that has a cath lab, and this is oftentimes the case. But if she was having an AMI, time is absolutely of the essence, and transport by air via a medical helicopter may very well be of great benefit to the patient by getting her to definitive care and treatment quicker than the ground ambulance could at this distance. A flight crew also has the added benefit of oftentimes being a higher level of care than many ground ambulances, as the flight paramedics will usually have to have advanced certifications, there is a flight nurse on board, and they will usually have far more advanced medications and far more advanced procedures that they are allowed to perform. So the ED doctors will oftentimes call for an air medical crew, and that is exactly what they did on this day. As the flight crew arrived on this day, they assessed the patient and found that she had minimal discomfort compared to when she first came into the emergency department. Her vital signs appeared stable, with a blood pressure of 130 over 70, a heart rate of just 88, and she was breathing about 22 times a minute. Her skin looked warm, dry, and pink, all of which is perfectly normal. I already mentioned that her EKG appeared unremarkable and she was in what we call a normal sinus rhythm, otherwise her rhythm was perfect. She had all of the results of a full blood panel and blood count and everything appeared to be within normal limits with the exception of the very slightly elevated troponin levels, which is a cardiac enzyme that may increase with cardiac tissue death or injury. The hospital had placed the patient on a nitroglycerin drip to help reduce her preload on her heart and also had given her 324 milligrams of aspirin and a total of 10 milligrams of morphine over the last 45 minutes. This morphine is probably why she was not really complaining of much discomfort by the time the flight crew arrived. Her paperwork from the hospital was gathered up and included the aforementioned blood work, a chest x-ray, and a full account of her entire medical history. Even though most rural hospitals cannot perform these cath procedures that are required to fully diagnose an AMI or to fix the AMI, they do have an amazing tool at their disposal, which is called Tissue Plasminogen Activator, otherwise known as TPA. This TPA can be in many different forms and variations, but in short, TPA helps to dissolve any possible blood clots that may have formed in the coronary arteries that have led to the suspected AMI or heart attack. This is in contrast to something like Coumadin, which helps to prevent clots from happening in the first place, or Aspirin, which helps to stop clots from getting worse. TPA will actually break up and dissolve the clot. But TPA medications are extremely high risk as the drug cannot selectively dissolve a clot in the coronary arteries as it will actually work to dissolve any clots that exist anywhere in the body. So TPA cannot be given otherwise known as contraindicated, in many instances such as recent strokes, recent surgeries, any bleeding disorder, a suspected aortic aneurysm or dissection, or even a low platelet count. TPA is not normally given very often in the hospitals in big metro areas as they have such quick access to cath labs. 
Even in the rural areas, this drug is not given that often anymore due to the risks. However, I don't want to get too much into the weeds on the risks of the drug as we could be here all day, but TPA is an amazing drug and should certainly be given when it is properly indicated and the risks of administration have outweighed the risks of withholding it. In this case, the sending physicians had ordered that the patient be treated with retivase, which is a form of TPA, to potentially reduce the clot during transport to the cath lab. Now, retivase, which is a brand name of TPA, is usually a two-dose drug, which requires the second dose to be given 20 minutes following the first dose, which is very important for this story. The flight crew packaged up the patient and began to transport her to the waiting helicopter. Just as they were packing her up, the RN in the ED administered the first dose of the retivase and then advised the flight crew that the physician orders were for the second dose to be given 20 to 30 minutes from that very moment. The flight crew continues transferring the patient out to the helicopter without any incident. The patient is awake and calm and appears almost excited to ride in the helicopter. Her family is present, and they all say their goodbyes just before she is loaded into the aircraft. The helicopter takes off without incident, and they begin their 70-minute flight to the big city in the cath lab. When the flight crew has a patient like this, their primary job is to continuously reassess the patient and be prepared for her to rapidly deteriorate at any moment. But like I said, she's perfusing well. Her blood pressure is fine, she's awake and alert, and has hardly any complaints at all. The flight crew is focusing on aircraft safety during takeoff, and once in cruise flight, are focusing on reassessing the patient's vital signs, her cardiac rhythm, her mental status, and by talking with her and being reassuring to keep her calm. 20 minutes has now passed, and it's time to administer the second dose of retivase. The drug is administered intravenously and without any immediate incident. About two minutes later, the paramedic, who's sitting behind the patient, tells his partner that he feels like he smells like maybe the patient might have defecated themselves. And as he looks down at the patient, she appears to be in what we call decorticate posturing. And as he looks over at the cardiac monitor, he sees that she's in a very fast sinus tachycardic rhythm. He immediately lowers the head of the bed and checks the patient's mental status and airway. The patient does not respond and does not appear to have anything wrong with her airway. He feels for a pulse and she does not have one. He then has to reach over the patient as with this particular helicopter, the only real way to do CPR is for the person at the head of the bed to actually lean over the patient's head and do compressions while the person that is seated on the other side of the aircraft leans under and can ventilate the patient if they are not yet on a ventilator. The paramedic tells the pilot that the patient has gone into cardiac arrest and asks the pilot to land at the closest possible airport or helipad. And during this time, all the paramedic and nurse can do is compressions and ventilations, and they were able to get the patient quickly intubated. The pilot landed in an extremely small, in an extremely rural hospital, way smaller than the original hospital where the patient originated. In this particular state, some of the rural hospitals may only be staffed with a single physician, and some of them may only have a paramedic or a nurse in the ER without any physician at all. After the pilot lands, there was no one there to greet them as they showed up unannounced. The pilot immediately runs inside and finds one physician and a nurse who bring out a bed to help transfer the patient inside. 
At this point, the paramedic asks the pilot to call the family, who, remember, is on their way to the big city to meet the patient, and tell them to divert to this local hospital and that they will have more information once they get there. You can only imagine how unbelievably stressful this must have been for the family to hear. Meanwhile, the paramedic, the nurse, and the ED crew, which only consisted of this one physician and two nurses for the entire hospital, are working the cardiac arrest. They have good ventilations and great compressions. The patient is now in a very slow idioventricular rhythm and does not have a pulse. In other words, she's in this terrible-looking pulseless electrical activity rhythm that we call PEA. They have given at least 10 rounds of epinephrine, 2 amps of sodium bicarb, calcium chloride, fluids, and have even decompressed her chest a few times. It has now been almost an hour since she went into cardiac arrest. Her head and her neck have turned a very bright blue, while the rest of her body below the nipple line appears pink and well-perfused. The family has also arrived and is anxiously awaiting in the waiting room to learn what has happened. The medic and nurses and physician all consult and they all agree that the efforts are now futile and that the resuscitation efforts must be terminated. The nurse works to clean up the room for the family while the paramedic and the physician go into the waiting room, which does not have anyone there except for the patient's family, and notify them that the patient died in flight and that they were unable to resuscitate her over the last hour. As you can imagine, the family is absolutely horrified and several of them break out in hysteria and begin screaming and crying and one of them even drops to the ground and just absolutely seems hopeless. So what happened? This patient was wide awake and alert and appeared relatively stable. Well, the crew had to return to their base, which was actually at the previous hospital, and so when they got there, they quickly walked over to the ED to discuss the outcome of the patient with the original sending physician. The paramedic told the physician everything that happened, and the physician immediately got a mortified look on his face. He asked one of the ED nurses if they had gotten the radiology report back yet for this patient. Remember, this was a very rural hospital, and it could take quite a while for a radiologist to interpret the x-rays and get them back in time before the patient is transferred. The ER nurse grabbed the report and showed it to the doc who said, Oh my God, she was having a dissection. To which the paramedic then rested his face in his hands, and the flight nurse just stood by in disbelief. They all had just realized that the patient received a fatal dose of the retivase since it was actually contraindicated for this patient. All medicines have a list of contraindications, which is basically a list of when to not give the medication. In this case, there is a long list of contraindications for retivase, one of which is a known or suspected aortic dissection. Someone who is having an aortic dissection has essentially torn the inner layer of the main artery that comes out of your heart and supplies blood to the entire body. The tear in the aorta itself is what causes the pain, which could be chest pain or quite often back pain, that somewhat shoots down the neck and down the back. If and when this aortic dissection actually ruptures or bursts is when the patient would probably die very quickly. And if treated early, dissections can be fixed sometimes, but once they rupture, it is almost impossible to save the patient. The only thing that is typically keeping a patient alive who has an aortic dissection is their normal clotting mechanism of their blood. The patient essentially, the only thing keeping her alive is a giant blood clot in the top of her aorta. 
When you cut your hand or your finger, the bleeding eventually stops due to the clotting cascade of the blood. And without this clotting mechanism, we would all die from the smallest of injuries. In these cases, clots are good. So what is Redivase and what does it do? Well, Redivase is technically a TPA form of drug and is given to break up clots. It is exactly the opposite of what a patient with an aortic dissection would need. So why did they give it? They gave it because they assumed that the patient was having a heart attack that was most likely caused by a clot. Her EKG didn't show a heart attack, but her cardiac enzymes, specifically troponin, were elevated, which could indicate injury to the heart, and it could mean that she's having a heart attack, but not necessarily. But the only true way to know is by doing an angiogram, which requires a cath lab, which this hospital didn't have, which is why they were flying this patient to a big hospital in the city where they did have a cath lab. In this case, the patient presented to the emergency department with chest pain and a chest x-ray was taken. The physicians, the flight medic, and the flight nurse did not properly check to see if the patient had a possible dissection as none of them made any attempt to expedite the radiology report or more importantly, to simply look at the x-ray themselves. This particular flight agency did not require the advanced certifications of the paramedic and nurse such as flight paramedic and CFRN, which is certified flight nurse, there is an accrediting body for helicopter EMS called the Commission on Accreditation of Medical Transport, otherwise known as CAMES, who does now require these high-level certifications within two years of hire for any flight service that is accredited, but they did not require this back in 2009. Amongst a million other things, both of these certifications would focus on the ability of the paramedic or the nurse to accurately identify what is known as a widened mediastinum on a chest x-ray. The mediastinum is basically a compartment in your chest where your heart rests. When fluid or air leaks into this compartment, it really doesn't have anywhere else to go. So if there is an increased amount of blood in this compartment, it will appear wider than normal on a chest x-ray. This one finding should have and would have been enough to alert the paramedic, the doctor, and the nurse to withhold the retivase. Why the ED doctor did not look at the x-ray is unknown. It's possible that he was very used to simply sending all the radiographs off to be read by a radiologist without first looking at them himself. Otherwise, I have no clue why he did not evaluate it on his own. But he should have. Either way, this is a classic case of losing situational awareness. Situational awareness is not just about seeing or knowing what's going on around you. In many studies published by me, when it comes to paramedicine, situational awareness also includes the need to properly interpret what is going on around you, as well as the ability to predict how those events may unfold in the near future. In this case, the paramedic, the nurse, and the doctor all knew what drug they were giving. They knew what it was indicated for, and they all knew the contraindications for retivase. But the doctor never looked at the chest x-ray, and the paramedic and the nurse did not consider that even if there was a widened mediastinum, that this would have been indicative of an aortic dissection. Both of them admitted that they did not know what a widened mediastinum meant, only that they knew that retivase was contraindicated in aortic dissections. So what is my probable cause finding here? The cause of this failure was the administration of retivase to a patient to whom the drug was contraindicated. Contributing to this error was the loss of situational awareness by all of the providers involved with the administration of retivase.
So what could have prevented this? In many industries, including aviation, in medicine, and especially in nursing, utilizing a cross-check procedure has been shown to save lives. It's how they ensure that all the doors are shut on your airplane before you take off. It's how surgeons ensure that they don't remove the wrong kidney, and it ensures that medications are not given to the wrong patients and in the wrong conditions. Yes, there are EMS agencies and medical flight services that implement a cross-check procedure for all medication administrations, but this flight agency did not do it, and they still don't require it today, and most agencies do not require such a process. It is sad and it is absolutely tragic that this happened, and this mistake and this story was 100% preventable. But guess what? This happens every day in this country, and no one ever talks about it. When it comes to commercial air travel, if there is even a single incident where someone gets even mildly hurt, the whole country will know about it right away. Plane crash? All over the world news. Too much turbulence and Lisa over here bumps her head? All over the news. Flight attendant tapes a dude to a chair? National headlines. But flight paramedic kills patient because he didn't realize that the medication he was about to give was obviously going to kill his patient? Crickets. Nothing. In EMS and HEMS, situations like this could get reviewed internally, but they didn't. And in this case, the paramedic stated that he actually got an attaboy for running a smooth cardiac arrest and getting a successful intubation in flight. Even if they had reviewed it internally, it is far more common that the flight crew would review the case, learn from their mistake, and then remember that mistake for the rest of their lives. But that mistake would most likely not get shared with the rest of the crew at the base or at the entire flight agency, and the patient had to die for them to learn from their mistake. Let me remind everyone that this channel is not here to bash, it's to learn from the past and improve ourselves moving forward. Pilots learn from their mistakes by flying as second in command for a long time before being the pilot in charge. They also screw things up and crash planes over and over again in simulators so that they are prepared for all of the emergencies that we can predict that they might face. They utilize crew resource management. They have safety management systems. They utilize checklists. They cross-check. What do we do in EMS? We kill our patients and then say, well, I once made this terrible mistake and I will never do that again. And everyone just seems to embrace it. And they call that a learning environment. I call it a tragedy each and every time that it happens. We cannot save everyone, but we certainly can prevent human error. Did you know that just a few years ago, there was a study that was completed that showed that medical human error by providers was actually the third leading cause of death in the United States? We need more research. We need more simulation. If and when mistakes like this do happen, the entire agency, or maybe even the entire profession, should know about it and learn from it. Remember the 737 MAX issue? Internally, Boeing knew about the issue. Then a 737 MAX crashed and killed everyone. Boeing knew why that airplane crashed, but all other 737 MAX pilots across the world were not told why. And then another 737 MAX crashed and killed everyone on board again. The public lost their mind. The FAA grounded the 737 MAX, and Boeing lost billions of dollars, and the whole aviation world got tossed turned upside down. But in EMS, and in much of healthcare, we make many more mistakes than these pilots do, which according to some studies, may cost far more lives than a couple plane crashes. Yet, 
No one is okay with a plane crash, and too many people seem to be okay with medical errors committed in healthcare and by paramedics. If you are a paramedic or anyone else in healthcare who wishes to share a similar story with me, please send me an email with the details. Change the names, change the city, change your name for all I care, but send me the story and maybe we can share it here and learn from it. Maybe one of you watching this right now will be affected to the point where you will never give a drug like this without doing the proper cross-check. I challenge you to put yourself out there. You will be anonymous, but maybe your story can help another paramedic or nurse to not make the same mistake that you did. If I am to ask you to be vulnerable, though, I guess I should be as well. That flight medic in this story, the one who gave the retivase and killed the patient, that was me. And that was my mistake. And just like many other paramedics, I have made many more mistakes. I just was lucky enough to have never made the same mistake twice. But I shouldn't have made it in the first place, and maybe that patient would still be here. But our mistakes shouldn't happen with real patients. They should happen on paper or in simulation so that they don't happen in real life. And if they do happen in real life, there should always be a deep investigation to figure out the cause and remediate not only those involved, but share the information with as many folks as possible so they too do not make the same mistake. I threw myself out there just now and in return, I hope you may have learned something about my own mistake. If you like this video, if you possibly learned a thing or two, please throw me a like and a subscription. I got nothing but peace and love for you all, and we'll catch you on the next episode.